0: This is Bill Price, author of The Frictionless Organization, Deliver Great Customer Experiences with Less Effort, and you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast.
1: Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn amongst others as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name, again, is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Bill Price to talk about the third book he has co-authored with David Jaffe, The Frictionless Organization, Deliver Great Customer Experiences with Less Effort, published by Barrett Kohler. Bill Price is a keynote speaker, graduate school instructor in marketing and global business management, board member, and is the co author of The Best Service is No Service How to Liberate Your Customers from Customer Service, Keep Them Happy, and Control Costs. That was from 2008, and in 2014, Your Customer Rules, Delivering the Me-to-Be Experiences that Today's Customers Demand. He is the founder and president of Driva Solutions, based in Bellevue, Washington, whose tagline is, Creating and Sustaining Highly Effective Customer Contact Strategies and Operations Locally and Globally. Bill started his career with McKinsey & Company in its San Francisco and Stockholm offices, serving global clients and working on what turned into the book in search of excellence. He was later the CFO and COO at an early-stage interactive voice response company that was later acquired by the telecommunications company MCI. He then built MCI Call Center Services Automation Consulting and Agent Outsourcing business and was later named one of the first call center pioneers by CRM Magazine. In 1999, Bill joined Amazon as the company's first worldwide VP of customer service, working closely with Jeff Bezos and his other direct reports to create what has become one of the most successful customer experience companies in the world. Bill is a graduate of Dartmouth College and the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And interesting fact, he is a veteran of the United States Navy. Bill, congratulations on the frictionless organization and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast.
0: Uh, Douglas, thanks for your warm and rousing introduction. I'm happy to be here today with you.
1: I had to mention Stanford, okay? And there have been Mm -hmm. more authors on the marketing book podcast over the years with degrees from Stanford than from any other school by an order of magnitude, which is why by podcast law, I'm required to play the Stanford fight song.
0: (laughs) And and that's much appreciated. (laughs) Maybe
1: maybe you have to agree to write a sales or marketing book when you apply to uh, one of their schools. But um, anyway, I, I also know that you are a kayaking enthusiast, so... I live on the Lafayette River in Norfolk, which you may recall from your Navy days. Mm-hmm. And I have two kayaks. So if you ever get back to mm-hmm. Norfolk, there's a kayak waiting for you.
0: Awesome. Love doing that. We, we kayak on the uh, <clears throat> Lake Washington, which is near where we live here outside of Seattle, and on uh, other lakes and rivers here in the Northwest. Love doing it. Good sport. I'll take you up on that when I'm back there.
1: Okay, great. Now, one other question. Australia once had penal colonies full of criminals sent there from England, and your co-author David Jaffe is from England but now lives in Australia. Was he sent there because he was convicted of a crime? (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> no, no. David got there much more recently. You'll be happy to know. Your wow. listeners will be happy to know. He joined uh, after graduating from Oxford University and uh, took a job in Australia, met his now wife, has had a wonderful family, lives in Melbourne, Australia. So no, he, he's he's a more recent <laughs> expat okay. to, uh, to Down Under. With a
1: clean criminal record. That's good to hear. Okay. Exactly. All right. So Bill, I've interviewed over 300 different authors, but you are the first one named Bill.
0: That's really hard to believe, but I'm, I'm pleased to be in, in, in a new category for
1: you. So that song has been going through my you know head for the last <laughs> week as I've been interviewing you. And just one other question, speaking of your name, are you any relation to Vincent Price?
0: No, I wish I were related to Vincent Price. Love his work. Love his sort of uh, his sort of. I don't. Know, he's heco- economical when he when he speaks, but whenever he speaks, you really pay attention to him. So I wish I, I were, but no, unfortunately not.
1: No. Oh, okay. He went to Yale, so I don't know if you knew that.
0: Well, you know, I, I I'll, I'll give him I'll give him that. He went to Yale. He went to that school rather than Dartmouth. But that's okay. Yale's a good school too. This is Vincent Price. Can you dig it? <laughs>
1: okay now that we've frightened the audience let's talk about the book this book right. has hilarious cartoons at the beginning of each chapter and cartoons <laughs> cartoons are hard uh, I once interviewed Tom Fishburne, the marketunist, and its I, I really admire mm-hmm. it, and they're, they're really good. And I was delighted to see that you have them all at your book website at uh, frictionlessorg.com. And I'm going to include a link to that right. at this episode's website page oh, great. at uh, Marketing mm-hmm. Book Podcast. Also, a lot of the headings in the book are questions. So in a sense, you mm-hmm. kind of wrote this book for an interviewer. So I thank you, Bill and David, and I love how in the book, every – Almost every chapter, you, you tell good stories and bad stories in each chapter. And the good stories, yep. you name the company, but the bad stories, right. you don't say what company it is, although I was able to figure out at least one of them. So, but you know, oh, you're, good. you're good. free from, I'm, I'm sure, any legal liability. A couple of right. things about the book, just before we get into it, is I found it interesting that your book has so much about human nature and psychology, which Mm -hmm. It shouldn't have surprised me because that's so important Mm -hmm. to implementing change in an organization.
0: Yeah, no, you're you're exactly right. We we could even blend it over to the broad term of culture. The whole area that we've come up with and and, and have learned about from talking to these great companies over the years is that that's what they obsess over. They obsess over the relationships between and among executives, between frontline employees, whether they're doing sales or service uh, and customers and prospects, they, they they figure out what that relationship should be. How should they speak to each other? How do they react whenever there's a problem? So it's there are people that have read the books and said, you know, gosh, if I could apply some of this to my personal life, it might actually be helpful too. You know, make things more frictionless." So I, we're, we're we're fine with that too.
1: Yeah, you know, and the other thing that occurred to me, just one reader, is I don't see how much of this approach that is explained in your book. Can be accomplished if if the company or organization has like weak leadership or a toxic culture. Correct, correct. So this, in a certain way, it's very much about leadership.
0: It, it it is, and leadership does start with the top, but it it's it's also it, it has to respond to the question that I often pose, which is who's responsible for customer experience in your organization. If I'm mm. if I'm with maybe sixty managers from the same company, we're at an offsite at some nice location. I ask that question, and I get maybe five or six hands show up. You know, hand, hands go up, and I go, wait wait a minute now. Everybody in this room, all sixty of you, need to be responsible for customer experience. Whether you're processing invoices, or designing products, or running an IT shop, or doing HR, all of you are. I mean, everyone's got to be focused on that. And then, then they go, "Oh, really? I guess I am." So leadership is not just the top, but it also has to be infused across really all those top layers. Everyone's got to feel like they're responsible for it.
1: Yes, and. Before we get to it, uh, one other big takeaway from your book, which we'll talk about towards th- a little bit later, is that this approach can help companies fear change a lot less <laughs> and possibly even embrace mm, it more. Mm, in fact, at one mm. point in the book, you write mm-hmm, that being mm-hmm, frictionless mm-hmm. enables business survival. Well, we, we,
0: we, have, we have stories near the end of the book, but also try to sprinkle them through the book to get – the reader prepared for it, that if you aren't prepared for change, someone else is going to change for you. They're, yes. they're going to take your business away for you. We use the example of, of uh, WebEx didn't pay attention to one of their senior engineer executives who wanted to have a simpler WebEx, a simpler interface, a lighter weight interface, didn't require that much download for the customers to use. So he left and he formed Zoom. So the guy that formed Zoom try to do that inside of webex they said no and now webex and now zoom is much bigger than webex so yes. those are cautionary tales
1: absolutely so i want to read from the preface uh, just to give folks mm-hmm. a sense of the book you write we are passionate about helping organizations deliver better experiences and less effort for their customers in this book we have tried to hand over our ideas And experience because we want organizations to get this right and to remove all the friction they have created for customers. We Mm -hmm. think this book Mm -hmm. has the potential to help every customer-facing organization deliver better customer experiences, save money, and grow revenue. That sounds too good to be true, but removing friction for customers really is a miracle Secure. However, it also requires hard work and adopting a way of thinking that the whole organization must get behind. If the customer service or sales team or the head of digital try to go it alone, you'll make some progress but get only incremental results. This book is a methodology for the whole of business, and becoming frictionless, as we have defined it, will challenge you. We can't tell product design finance, marketing, sales, IT, and other departments, how to get it right, but we can show you where to look for the problems and solutions. As such, the book focuses on interactions with customers because of a universal truth we've learned. Customers don't want to contact you. (laughs) You made them do it. We focus on interactions with customers because that's where the problems and complaints wash up in every organization and where customers describe the friction they are experiencing. Now, let's go back in time just a bit and share with us why you and David wrote this third book.
0: Well, we we try to collect a lot of these ideas, Douglas, in our first book, which came out, as you said, back in 2008. The best service is no service was the expression that I gave to Jeff Bezos when he interviewed me back in 99, and he asked me what was my philosophy for running customer service. And I told him, gee, I mean, why would anybody need to contact a company like Amazon? It's completely online, at least back then it was. So it must represent, customers contacting Amazon must represent mistakes or confusion. So if we can get rid of the confusion, if we can clear up the mistakes, then customers don't need to contact Amazon. They can go off and buy things and keep using those things. So the first book's concept was to try to get that out there. But since then, since 2008, we've had this proliferation of customer contact channels. We've had uh, a a younger generation much more anxious about getting things right than we've seen in previous generations. I mean, my daughters just, if something doesn't work right, they'll just, they'll just drop it and go someplace else. They, they won't even bother to complain. They'll just drop and move on. We have expectations because of that being much, much higher. Why can't you make things as easy as fill-in-the-blank company in a different industry? So in 2008, the big deal was how good are we in our industry you know let's use xyz rating service and say are we the best bank are we the best this or that now the question is and i think more appropriate, we think more appropriately who's the best out there doing it in any genre in any vertical because that's what our customers are expecting so this time around we'd made it more democratic if you will a broader Spectrum than just looking at one's own industry and try to achieve this frictionless state, this frictionless uh, situation is really one of let's just root out all these problems because our customers are going to find them and it's going to really frustrate them. So we decided it was time for a more comprehensive guide and, and sort of a deeper – view of it. We actually have more how-to instructions in this book than we've ever done before. We thought it would just it made, it made sense to, to give everyone the, the benefit of what we've learned over the years.
1: Let's talk about something important. Okay, Bill Price, I am now going to read what I think is the most important sentence in the book and answers a question. You're right. What is a frictionless, frictionless organization? A frictionless organization is one that has made its products and services so effective that customers never have to make contact for the wrong reason. Can you dig it?
0: Can you dig it? Can
1: you dig it? Okay, let's talk about money now. Studies show, I mean, let's just get get straight to the money, okay? (laughs) Mm -hmm. studies show that the quality of customer experience correlates with financial performance what what are some of the Mm -hmm. financial benefits of a frictionless organization
0: first one is that customers will stay with you and they'll wind up buying more stuff from you in other words they won't churn they won't leave at least they won't leave because you upset them they may leave for other reasons that are outside of your control so that's number one number two is that you will be able to cross sell or upsell to them, a big hot topic, of course, for many years, if you do things right. You can't cross sell and upsell to an irate customer who called because their internet keeps dropping or because their bill is wrong, things that are sources of friction. So that's number two. And number three is it actually reduces costs significantly. Yes. It reduces support costs, uh, d- redesign costs. Uh, Uh, cost to go out there and retrieve a broken product because it was damaged on on shipment. So huge amount of cost savings as well. So it really is a a win in both the revenue side as well as on the cost side.
1: And from a management standpoint, you explain that reducing friction is a unifying strategy uh, for the whole organization. Yes, yes. So for those listeners who think they're providing a good experience, (laughs) Mm -hmm. they may not be. Uh, What are some of the things they can do to tell if being frictionless or more frictionless would be a good idea Mm -hmm. for their organization?
0: Well, the the first step, Douglas, is to to figure out what are the reasons why customers are bothering to contact you for help or support. And you need to look at all those customer-facing channels, a retail store, a sales team, a support team in your contact centers if you've got those still. And break down those reasons into a well, we, we, we recommend a limited number of reasons, between 25 and 50 reasons. Some companies have hundreds and hundreds of reasons and they can't distinguish them and others have only a few, like Sales and support or marketing. Those are too brief. You have to get a little deeper than that. And I gave you one example a few minutes ago, which is my internet keeps dropping or my bill is wrong or where's the closest retail stop uh, shop or is this the right product for me? Usually it's the beginning of a conversation on the phone it might be the subject line of an email message the beginning of a chat session it's what that customer says when they walk into a retail store it's what that first little utterance is and then you look at whether these reasons or intents are going up or down over time using a rate of contacts not the volume because you could be growing very fast and and you could see a slight increase in that rate of contacts and that's good but the idea is, what are the contact volumes and the costs of those by customer or by some other driver? It could be, so at Amazon, it was obviously the, the order shipped. You know, did customers contact us less frequently per order shipped? Because Amazon was shipping a lot of orders and kept growing, we wanted to make sure that the, the rate of growth in the contacts went down. Same thing for a T-Mobile with their retail shops, or a uh, a company like United Healthcare when it comes to claims support. They want to see a reduction, and you want to see a reduction in the rate of contacts for those reasons that are irritating your customers. And unfortunately, most of the reasons do irritate your customers. Uh, very few are ones that actually they want to contact you about.
1: Right, and I think the rate is important because you explained that in the book because rather than mm-hmm. – I got the impression a lot of companies will just look at the total number. Right. And they may see the total number going down, but the rate is actually going up. What are mm-hmm. some of the common obstacles that you've seen in your career for organizations becoming frictionless? I mean the, the big ones where perhaps mm-hmm. when they call you and <laughs> you spend some time with them, you can see they may not they, – they may have a tough road to hoe.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I think one of the common obstacles is is not listening to customers. It sounds sounds trite, but it's so important. You hear some customers say at the beginning of a, of an interaction, "Hey, you didn't get back to me like you said you would." Mm-hmm or this is the second time I've had to contact contact you about this, or you still haven't fixed this for me, which are like a thread or a chain of problems. So it's not just a single issue. Now we're talking about a, uh, a multiple problems. So that's one. And you have to listen to those customers even more intently because now you've frustrated them several times in a row. Another reason is that and you talked about a little bit earlier, if you don't take this as a whole of business problem, then you point to the customer service team and say, you guys aren't fixing this. Well, customer service can't fix very much of this stuff. <laughs> right. Customer service can take it, can can package it, and then ship it off to marketing or IT or legal if it's a legal type issue and and uh, shipment uh, outbound shipping teams and get them to start taking some ownership of it. So if there's this sense of, well, that's customer service's problem, well, it isn't.
1: Yeah, and you know what? As a consumer, I think it's important to keep that in mind when you're talking to customer support people because <laughs> they're trying to do <laughs> what they can. And uh, I mean, oh, just yeah. yesterday I was on the phone. There had been a mess up on the phone service and uh, she was very helpful. And it was like, mm-hmm. she goes, yeah, they screwed up at the warehouse. And it was like, great. Thanks for just <laughs> looking into it. I, you know, So uh, I should mm-hmm. say that was Verizon. Mm-hmm. Very happy with them. So mm-hmm. one other question before we dive into the nine steps of becoming frictionless – On page 17, you write, We've observed that customer experience improvements tend to revolve around two dominant methodologies that have become well-established but don't always reduce friction, customer journey mapping and customer experience Mm -hmm. measurement. What are the pitfalls that folks should know about those two approaches?
0: Well, customer – Journey mapping, it can be a useful technique, but unfortunately, it pretty much talks about the current state. It doesn't really start – it can, but it usually doesn't imagine a future state or it doesn't necessarily include and infuse some of the frustrating points that customers are telling you about along the way. Uh, It also tends to be a straight line rather than accepting the different variations. Not every customer goes through the exact same steps. Some some customers skip steps. Some customers aren't aware of what's out there and so they're 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 just fumbling along. And and the key thing for customer journey mapping is it doesn't really get at what we call the root cause analysis. That's an old expression, but it's so important here to figure out. So your example Verizon, she told you that it was something in the warehouse. Well, hopefully what she did signaled something to somebody to look into why did we have warehouse problems? Mm-hmm. Otherwise they're just going to keep happening. And you may get an answer that's a warehouse problem, but the warehouse still has problems. So that, that customer journey and we do some customer journey mapping in our work. And so do the companies that we feature here, but they they take it as kind of a starting point. Right. Just to kind of give them some ideas and then, then they then they break it down into the details that I just mentioned. Customer experience management is is one where we wind up as an industry and as a group of companies we we tend to be obsessive over a limited sample size of customer feedback. Uh, In other words, if you ask customers a survey question, no matter whether it's customer effort score, net promoter score, satisfaction, whatever it might be the response rate tends to be pretty low maybe 5 10 15% response rate which means 85 to 95% of your customers aren't giving you feedback mm-hmm. and that's a big problem because the vast majority of your customers are not included in your analysis techniques but need to be because they're out there and they have problems as well and because of survey fatigue and other other uh, other realities, customers are just like oh, I'm not going to bother with this. They're not listening to me, or yes. I'm just going to give them a a low score. So yeah, so we 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 want. But however, there are people who just toil away. From, a, from an industry point of view and from a company point of view, in other words, vendors and ind- and, and, and users saying, oh let, let's let's worry about it. Our, our net promoter score went from 44 down to 42 or conversely went from 44 to 46 hey, things are great. Well, it's usually a limited sample size and not nearly projectable enough.
1: And you refer to it somewhat derisively in the book as scorekeeping.
0: And yes, that, yes, for yes, me, yes. sums
1: up why I don't answer these long, painful quest- mm-hmm. surveys, even from the airlines who should mm-hmm. know better, because right. I don't think they're going to do anything with it. And what, I, if you've ever had a bad experience and they immediately text you or email right. you saying, hey, right. how are we doing? What do you mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I think the customer journey mapping seems like a great start. If a company's talking about that, that's that's a good thing, but they should just be aware of those those pitfalls. But the customer experience measurement, if we have a minute, we're going to talk about that here. So, mm-hmm. let's let's jump into the the nine steps. Let's talk about the first one, which is called understand. And can uh, you mm-hmm. tell us the the story from page 26 on the 30 reasons that matter? From Amazon, you already started (laughs) to touch on this. I loved that story. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. Well, this is this goes back a number of years, but that that's that's it's still a very useful one. Uh, When I first got there after after Jeff hired me, when I said the best service is no service, and he he agreed that's what he wanted to do as for the company, I discovered that we had about three hundred or three hundred and fifty different contact reasons for our email uh, correspondents in about 60 or so for phone calls and they were different from each other and they weren't combined into one list. And moreover, any director or above any VP or director could ask customer service to add more reasons. So we had to keep training our customer service team to listen for and to record more and more reasons. And it got confusing and the validity was, was, was really suspect. And so we called a, a full stop and said, let's let, let just start from scratch, um, uh, Put out our elbows to the to the other departments and said, "We're we're gonna we're gonna rationalize what the reasons are here, so they make sense to you and for the company." And we came up with only thirty, and that was from
1: three hundred and sixty <laughs> that you started with three hundred
0: and sixty. Yeah, three hundred and sixty, which were different from phone and email. We had thirty that were the same for phone or email, and yeah, exactly. It was and, a very long tail. <laughs> It Oh, huge tail. And, and, and therefore not. So the, the top 10 of those 360 never changed very much
1: right, week right. over week.
0: Now we had some dynamics because we only had 30 and they were all in the customer's language. That's another big deal is they were all in the customer's language. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, it's what the customer says at the beginning of the phone call. Like, where's my stuff? Like I've been waiting for my product. Where's my stuff? When's it going to get here? Or something came damaged. Or one one of my favorites was, I don't understand this promotion which is a pretty bad question when you think about it like mm. Amazon sent out a like a $5 off your next $30 purchase and customers were saying well I got it for a book can I apply it for toys you know, and and questions that were confusing to the customer because we were trying to get them to buy something but it was confusing and so each of those 30 reasons we, we looked at on a, like a 6 week running basis to see on, and again using that rate concept let's look at the contacts per order shipped if customers were contacting us more frequently for where's my stuff that's a bad problem if they were contacting us less frequently for I don't understand this promotion that's good because we were making the promotions clearer we were we were clearing we were cleaning up some of that language so that led to a, a big issue in the company because each of those 30 reasons was assigned to a particular owner who reported to Jeff Bezos and a few of those were mine, but most of them were owned by our head of operations, logistics, marketing, web development, and, and so forth. And they had to explain every week what they were doing to address the problems. It wasn't mm-hmm. customer service. We, we, we were presenting the data, but they had to own it in front of Jeff and the other C-level executives. And it made a huge difference over time.
1: Yeah, and that actually walks us right into step two, which is called assign and mm-hmm. prioritize And let me quote from uh, page 52. You write, Assigning tasks to owners, like you just described, assigning Mm -hmm. tasks to owners is critical because most problems are caused outside of customer service and need to Mm -hmm. be owned in the right place in the organization. This step sounds Mm -hmm. straightforward enough, (laughs) but getting busy department heads to take ownership of problems they haven't previously recognized can be quite complex. You also write that assigning ownership is is harder than it sounds. What mm-hmm. what would you say are some of the most important things in this step, <laughs> and as well as some of the common barriers? It seems like there's a lot of yeah. Well, as a friend of mine who served in the navy, like you, uh, he used a term "booger flicking," and I apologize to the audience <laughs> for saying that. But it's another; it's a more graphic way of saying finger pointing.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, part of the problem, Douglas, is that. And, and and this this is this really is a great way to start. Part of the reason is that a lot of the departments or, or uh, executives within the organization aren't aware of these problems. They're just not aware of them. They're they're not listening to calls. They're not talking to customers. They're reading high level reports like NPS went from X to Y, and that's it. Right. So when they start listening to the customers' verbatim comments, when they start looking at the customer reasons. In the customer's language, like where's my stuff or my internet keeps dropping, whatever it might be, then they go, oh, wait a minute now. Are we getting customers who are upset with that? I own that. I mean I'm the one who builds the network or I'm the one who creates the bills or I'm the one who sets up that that XY connection on the website that says T- punch in your zip code and this is the closest retail store. And and we have, we shouldn't have any customers contacting us for that. We want to make that easy. Mm-hmm. So just making them aware of the problem is I won't give a percent, but it's a big percent of of the solution and many of them are just not aware of it at all. When we do workshops with customers today and when we talk to these customers, they do their own types of workshops that, that introduce a meeting with a customer phone call. Just listen, let's listen before we talk about how we're gonna fix stuff or build stuff, let's listen to what our customers are telling us about the stuff we've already built. Right. And and then and then the executive goes, Oh boy, boy, I didn't know they knew that about our products or. Boy, I, I didn't realize we had that problem even. Mm-hmm. So part of it is just getting awareness. The second part—I'll just go to two here. The second one is by having it, having different executives in the room. There's a little bit of of shame blaming, but also sharing of the problem. Like we have, an ex- we have a story in the book from Blizzard Entertainment where the uh, the guy running customer service at that time related to us, Todd with that he got everyone in the room and they talked about some of these technical issues and no one was really owning up to them. And finally, the VP of product raised his hand and said, yeah, that's my group. I, I kind of knew that was a problem. I'll own that one. I'll, I'll, I'll figure out what to do about that one. And then the dam broke because then the other executives all said, oh, that's my problem or I'll take care of this one. Mm-hmm. And so it, it takes that leadership, high-level leadership you talked about earlier, but it takes some sort of a, a bonding. We're all in this together. We're all responsible for the customer experience.
1: Yes, and I think there was another story about how the marketing people were getting penalized because of the website or some, some organization, <laughs> mm-hmm. w- w- some element there. And they said, look, if you're going to beat <laughs> us up about this website, let us control the website.
0: <laughs> right. Right, right, exactly. No, that, that was that was a T Mobile and it was a great story where the customer service team was not able to get much real estate on the website for the FAQs, customer service Absolutely, issues, yeah. how to return a product and so forth. And and that's because the website was trying to sell you stuff. But the sad thing was, and now they've changed the sad thing was, and most websites are like this. If you just bought a brand new device and plan from T Mobile in those days, this is a while ago now, you go on then you come on the website, the first thing you saw was Here's a brand new deal. Here's a brand new phone. And you're saying to yourself, wait a minute now, I, that's after you register. That's actually – you actually come in as a customer. They go – customers would say, well, wait a minute. I just bought something a week ago. Is that not good anymore? You know, Maybe, maybe I need to replace that. And that wasn't the intention. They were coming in. The customers coming in to maybe check on how to download a ringtone or how to check their first invoice or whatever it might be from a service point of view. So the uh, executives at T-Mobile turned around and said, okay, customer service, we want you to run the website for a while because we need to make sure that it's much more customer-related rather than trying to sell <laughs> stuff when customers just
1: bought stuff, and it yeah. made a big
0: difference. Now, now it's a nice balanced website, and and it works great.
1: Right. Well, I also like how you write about one technique that forces owners to take responsibility for their assigned contacts mm-hmm. is to make them feel the pain of all the associated yes. costs. <laughs> Explain that. <laughs>
0: Well, I mentioned before looking at the rate of contacts, looking at the contacts per orders, contacts per invoices, and so forth. Um, but you also need to look at what the costs of those yes. contacts are, and and it's not just the operating costs, like like answering the calls or handling it in a retail shop. It's what happens downstream after you have that that conversation. It could be sending out someone to pick up a broken uh, refrigerator which is very expensive to do after a refrigerator has been shipped and and arrives broken or doesn't work. It might be sending out a replacement part. It might be uh, issuing a refund or credit. It might be researching what the problem was. You take all those subsequent costs, those downstream costs, combine them to the operating costs, and you say this issue, like why is my internet so slow or why is my invoice wrong? You take that issue and you have a total cost for it and then you – reverse the cost to the owners. You go back and you say, you're the head of billing, your billing team is making mistakes, it's causing frustrations. We have the evidence right here. They're calling us, they're emailing us, they're coming into our shops, and here's the cost associated with it. This is coming out of your budget. They
1: scream, they really pay attention, they don't,
0: don't, like don't they? This. Oh, now they do. They because initially <laughs> they scream and find the CFO, you know, folds her arms and says, you know something. This is like a leaky bucket. One of my colleagues calls it that too, which is you're sending more and more invoices, but we have this this cost that we have to take every time. Let's figure out how we can fix it in the first place so we don't have this leaky bucket. And then they start paying attention.
1: Loved it. So the next one is eliminate. And let me just get one vocabulary word out of the out of the way here. Mm-hmm. You you refer mm-hmm. to contacts. And I think there may be some listeners yes. who are thinking, oh, a contact, that means like a lead on a, on a website. That's, that's not what, really what we're talking uh, about. Uh, we're talking about a customer contacting you, right?
0: Yes, that's right. Customer contact uh, is ac- that. We're, t- we're talking about eliminating the need for those contacts, the need for those assisted contacts. So we're not talking about digital self-service. That so we're going to come to that next. But right. the the need for the uh, for the assisted contacts. Yep.
1: Right. You write eliminate contacts represents the worst kinds of friction, and you write that of right. all the frictionless strategic actions. Eliminate produces the most impact. So, yeah, explain eliminate and what is supposed to happen. So eliminate,
0: the reasons that get assigned to the eliminate action, as we call it in the book, and we've got a whole framework about how to do that in the book. The reasons that get assigned there are the ones that are really irritating to customers. They could be a first time or could be a repeat issue of the same thing. Uh, and and I'll, I'll give you a quick example that a lot of your customers might uh, – a lot of your listeners might, might understand, which is, hey, you know, why is my bill so high? They're not challenging the veracity or the accuracy of the bill necessarily, but indirectly they're saying, why is my bill so high? Well, one reason why the bill is so high could be that a credit or a discount that was issued at the beginning of the relationship has now rolled off and the customer was not made aware – that now they're going to be paying more now they're going to be paying full freight rather than the discounted rate so they were not informed on at onboarding or they weren't advised along the way they weren't alerted before the new invoice was was submitted and they're looking at it going Wait a minute! i used to pay fifty dollars a month now it's sixty six dollars a month what's with this well the company did nothing wrong except that they didn't tell the customer that that original uh, credit was now uh, being rolled off had they Told the customer, maybe the customer would have said, "Well, can I apply for a different plan, or can I do something else?" But instead, they call up frustrated or at least confused, like, "Why is my bill so high?" And that is an irritating contact because a customer should not have needed to make that contact. It should have just been handled automatically by the company, and 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 through information and root cause improvements, just gone done away with it. That, that, that's a soft. Reason, that's a soft example of the hard examples are ones that like my internet keeps dropping. I'm, I'm working from my home office here or I have a small business and I, I'm dependent on the internet and my internet keeps dropping. And it could be the root cause for that is you're not even the, even the right service area. The the service provider sold you uh, a, an ability to come onto the network when, when the service quality is not very good where you live or where you work. And so that's just a perpetual or consistent problem and very irritating. So uh, eliminating that one might actually be improving the network, or it might be telling the customer, you know, you might be better off going to another provider who has better service in this area. Mm-hmm. So you actually help the customer find a better connection. So irritate, irritating reasons are the ones that go into eliminate.
1: Yes, and I want to mention that in this chapter, you mentioned that less than 4% of customers ever complain, which brought to mind a book that was on the show some years back by Jay Bear called Hug Your Haters.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: That whole book was about that, about what a gift they're giving you by complaining. Yes, 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 Most will go away, and many of them who do go away will tell other people, but they'll never contact you. Yep,
0: yep. No, nope. it's 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 a frustrating it's a frustrating situation.
1: So you're lucky to get those complaints exactly right. So the next one is digitize, which seems like that might mm-hmm. be very often misunderstood by people, but you say digitize mm-hmm. typically offers the second biggest opportunity. After eliminate yeah. we just discussed to reduce costs. So what does digitize look like when it's it's done correctly?
0: So there's been a there's a flurry of and that's even understating it. There, there's been a almost an epidemic of of, of efforts around the world to digitize. You know, let, let's let's go digital first. Let's let's have a digital solution on a chatbot, on your apps on portals on phone systems. Let, let's 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 just have lots of digital solutions out there because customers prefer digital.
1: Right, is that often mixed in with the term digital transformation?
0: It it is. It is. And and you see consulting firms and organizations just just tout that as a big deal, digital transformation. There are some customers love digital, self-service, I want to do it myself, and some don't know how to do it or they're they're hesitant to do it or they need to be trained to do it. But in the book we we go a little bit beyond that and say some issues don't really lend themselves to be digitized, they should be eliminated, going back to that first action we just described. Mm -hmm. Other ones, you should really think about inviting a conversation. So to give an example, I want to cancel my account. Okay, do you want to make that a simple button on a website, or do you want to talk to them to find out why? Uh, And in which case, it comes to the next, one of the next actions we're going to talk about, which is called leverage. Mm -hmm. But the thing about digital is that we we have put so much stuff on chatbots or apps and so forth that customers sometimes do get confused and they're not able to find what they want. And so the success rate, sometimes called the containment rate in the digital channel, is really low. So, for example, I talk to companies, different companies that say, well, you know, we have a brand new chatbot, really love it. 20% of our contacts are now automated on the chatbot. And I go, "Mm, good for you. So that means 80% are not covered in the chat bot. What happens to those 80% of customers who can't get the answer in the chat bot? They go, well, we think they call us up afterwards to get the answer, but they don't know. In other words, a 20% containment rate means 80% failure. We use that term very specifically in the chapter. (laughs) Uh So you failed 80% of the time. Where can you acknowledge that 80% is a good number? It's a horrible number. And if you don't know where those 80% of those customers go, do they really contact you afterwards and did you fix it then? Or do they just say, ah, forget about it? You know, I, I, I tried the chat, bot; it didn't work. These guys clearly are clueless. I, I'm just going to go somewhere else. Companies need to know that. And so the digital chapter, the digitized chapter says, what should you digitize and how do you make sure it works really, really well so that you don't need assisted contacts? You don't need to have a friction, a
1: friction situation. But not everything can or should be digitized.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot, a lot of digital teams, very skilled digital teams go, tell me all your reasons. We're going to have an answer for everyone on the website. And the answer might be, no, we don't need that. Let's put the ones in there that really need to be on the website. And the other ones we should either eliminate completely or send alerts, which we'll get to next, or talk to the customer. Let's, let's, let's be a little more discriminating here.
1: Yeah, yes. So 5, section 5 is preempt and but let's back up for a second. You write that eliminate actions stop irritating impacts and hopefully fix them once and for all and digitize actions mm-hmm. automate routine transactional needs. Now, right. Right. as a customer, I am most impressed when I encounter what you call a preempt. Perhaps because it so rarely happens. But you write on page uh, 125, well-executed preempt strategies do more than just prevent contact. They also demonstrate respect Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. the customer and their time. Mm -hmm. Explain preempt. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. Pre- preempt is something that, that is, is coming on strong as, as a concept, and we're really glad that we're, we're emphasizing it, and I'm glad you're picking it up too, Douglas, which is if you know something is wrong, if you know something might go wrong, then tell your customers. Let them know before they figure it out themselves. Airlines have done this pretty well over the years by sending you alerts before you leave home or maybe as you're en route saying, oops, you know, sorry, but we have a weather condition here at the airport. Your flight's going to be delayed an hour, but don't worry. Your connection's fine. Oh, whew, okay. Now yeah. I don't have to worry. I can get to the airport. Those, those are nice alerts, nice preempts. What you don't want to have is you go, through the, go to the airport, travel through a little bit of weather, get there, and you look up on the screen and it says delayed. And you oh my God, what's going on? I've got a connection in Chicago. What's what's going on in Chicago? And, and, and look around you and there's a long queue waiting for customer service. So you have to go on your app. Okay. If you have an app, you go on your app, you figure that out. Those should All that information needs to go to you first. Same thing for an Amazon, a Wayfair, any company that does uh, online retailing. If you think something is going to be later than you thought it was going to be, send an alert. It may be not very important for the customer. They may not be expecting it. Or they may not need it that day. But maybe they do need it that day. In other words, they're asking for a new headset for a podcast interview with uh, with Douglas <laughs> Burdett. and they're and oh my God, it's not here yet. What am I going to do? Well, at least let them know. Maybe they can run off to a Best Buy and buy it today rather than wait for it to come online. So you're you're making it easy for them. You're respecting their time and you're respecting their ability to maybe make some choices rather than just uh, let them figure it out when it finally happens. So there's a whole range of these preempt conditions or preempt situations we lay out in the book, and, and we're hoping that they'll really pick up more and more over time.
1: Yes, and not to keep talking about Verizon, but it came to mind when mm. at some point in the past when the, the business rep – Because of a business account, called up and said, "Hey, I think you need a different plan Mm
0: -hmm. because of your Mm -hmm. data
1: usage. This one's actually going to cost less." Mm -hmm. And (laughs) and then they said, Mm. "Yeah." So anyway, that was the sort of thing where I thought, "Wow, I I, gosh, I really appreciate you letting me know about that and that you, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. uh, you you can do that." So you write that many organizations have the potential to analyze usage in. Data in order to adopt preemptive mm-hmm. strategies, but they choose not to do so. What what have you found to be the reason why they don't don't do it?
0: <laughs> they may not trust their own uh, data sources, which is a sad fact. Uh, in other words, they 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 may not know that those data sources are as valid and as uh, uh, clear as they really are. And that's number one. Number two is they may. Think that, oh, but it's going to cost us some money and time to set up these alerts. Uh, if a customer has a problem, they'll reach out to us, and, and we got a great customer service team, and, and they'll fix it. Uh, that's that's not right. That, that's that's really backwards. <laughs> they, they need to let the customer know beforehand, as I mentioned before. Uh, and then they also may not know that some of these conditions are as as serious as they really are. In other words, they may there may be an IT team developing these proactive and uh, proactive preemptive alerts, but they may not be tied into this this irritation matrix we talk about in the book. So if they were, then they'd go, okay, this is an issue that really does frustrate our customers. We need to let them know really quickly. Uh, a quick example was uh, there, there's a, a mention in the book we uh, heard from Trek Bicycles that they were uh, they hadn't they hadn't set up a recall yet for this particular issue, but they were waiting for customers to come into the bike shops for something to get fixed and replaced. And when they thought about this some more, they said, "You know, we better reach out to every customer to whom we sold this bike with this product issue and let them know, and actually set up a uh, a repair and replacement appointment for them." And it it was a positive surprise for their customers. But initially, they didn't do it because they said, "Well, that's going to take a long time to set up all these appointments," but. Then they wound up having a much better relationship with their customers because they said, we know you bought this bike from us last year. You have this part in it that we need to replace. It's not a formal recall, but we really want to take care of you. And customers were delighted by that and could schedule something because it wasn't urgent.
1: And it probably drove more retail traffic.
0: (laughs) And then you – exactly right. that that That's always a good thing. The salespeople like that too because maybe you come in, you buy another helmet or you wind up even buying another bike. But the key thing is you only can do that, Douglas, because you made the customer satisfied. You, you reduce that friction for that.
1: Right, right. It's another great quote on page 146 when you write, When done well, customers will notice the outreach and the attention, and it will please Mm -hmm. them when preempt strategies are offered in their interest. So let's – coming around the bend here. Six is streamline. Explain uh, what you write on page 149. Streamline actions should be assigned to those contact reasons that are irritating to the customer but valuable to the organization. Irritating to the customer, valuable to the organization.
0: Yeah, and we go on to say uh, you know, that, that this is really a contradiction, that, that if you really do focus on the customer experience and customer irritation, you should be eliminating because it irritated them. But we point out that and acknowledge that in some cases, these are first-time issues. You've never seen them before. A customer might say... I'm having a problem with this. My, 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 my new accessory isn't working. Uh, think about Sonos, for example, that now has two generations of of speakers, home speakers, working off your internet. They have Sonos 1 and Sonos 2. I don't know why they did that, but they have two different systems and two different apps. And so customers get confused. And it could be that Sonos issues a Sonos 3, and the customer goes, well, will this earlier speaker of mine be compatible? And someone at Sonos may not have thought about that. I'm making this one up completely, but they may not have thought about that compatibility. And they want to talk to the customer and find out, well, where is it located? Can you give me the model number of that unit? I want to, We want to make sure that it will work with your new app, the Sonos 3 app. So first-time issues, uh, issues that that the company doesn't quite know what to do with before they wind up eliminating. So the, 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 the whole point of Streamline is to make that an easier conversation to have, an easier interaction to have, and then think about how to move it quickly into the eliminate action, which is where all the irritating stuff needs to go anyway.
1: What is flipping the turtle?
0: Uh, flipping the turtle is one of my favorite expressions from from amazon as well it was something that was there before i joined and uh susan robinson came up with this idea and i still give her credit for it. it's such a wonderful one whenever a customer is frustrated or upset you need to spend as much time as you need to pull out any stops you need to pull out in order to help that customer figure out what's going on the turtle it's on a shell so when a turtle it's on a shell a turtle anatomically cannot flip itself over It's its legs are wiggling in the air, can't turn itself over. So you as the customer service rep, you as the sales representative, you need to flip that turtle over, get that customer flipped over. And then when that happens, the customer is at least satisfied with that particular situation. And then you need to go a little bit further and say, did that customer buy from us again? Did they buy from us one more time again? Do they they keep working with us? And then if they did... Then, then you've really flipped the turtle successfully. And, and companies around the world that we work with have now picked up that concept to say, let's track what happens after we deal with that customer upset, with that upset yes. customer. And we flip that around. Did they really stay with us? What did they do? Because it's not just a matter of the customer say, hey, thank you very much, Douglas. That's great. Because if you didn't buy anything from Verizon again, then Verizon, you are lost out and, and someone else won. So find out what, trace what they did afterwards. Did they buy from us again? At least, at least we're moving in the right direction.
1: Is the service – I don't know if this is in the book, but this, I think it's called the service recovery paradox where people mm-hmm. argue mm-hmm. that after you've solved a problem for a customer, they're actually more loyal. It seems like this is a way to find out if it's true, did they buy from us?
0: Yeah. No, my, 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 my good friend, my good business colleague, John Goodman, writes about the service uh, recovery paradox quite a bit. He has a, a number of books in this area as well, and, and he and I have some really nice debates about it over time. My point of view, David's David Jaffe, my point of view is let, let's fix it in the first place so you don't even need to have the issue. But if you do have the opportunity for service recovery, do it right. Take the time. Take the time that it might might uh, require, but then figure out what happens afterwards. Did they really buy from you again? Did they say good things about you again? If 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 they gave you a high score on Net Promoter, did they actually bring someone else in? In other words, did they actually help bring in a new customer through word of mouth, or would, or do they just give you a high number? So yes, you're right. It's 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 so important to trace that. So at Amazon and other companies that we've seen in the book, like T-Mobile, uh, and uh, Oh, I think about it sure. Blizzard Entertainment, many other ones we talk about, United Airlines, after the interaction, they do look very closely to find out what happens to that customer. And if it goes well, they actually play that up. Hey, we, we spent the time to fix the customer problem at that moment, at, at least get them flipped over. And and now two things happen. Let's, let's trace what, what the customer did subsequently, but let's also eliminate that need so other customers don't have that same situation. So that, that's where you go back to the root
1: cause. Right. And from this uh, Streamline chapter, there was one excerpt that I'd like to read just because mm-hmm. it I want to shout it from the rooftops. <laughs> it got me. Your book actually got me emotionally involved here, Bill. So well done. You write oh. uh, page 161, very few organizations have simplified feedback to its maximum extent, mm-hmm. which is to give customers mm-hmm. a single open-ended prompt like, Please tell us what you think, or how could Mm -hmm. we have made this easier for you? Rating scales Mm -hmm. and numeric feedback are there to keep score, but free format questions are there for true feedback. And the next page you write, these open-ended questions are actually quite simple to produce and leverage. They give customers Mm -hmm. more freedom and force the organization to listen and analyze the responses. Which made me laugh. The latest generation of text and speech analysis tools now make open-ended and free-format responses easier to analyze, enabling an organization Mm -hmm. to find patterns and themes. Meanwhile, scorekeeping and boxing the customer into complex surveys, which should be used sparingly, have become the norm. As a result, it's no surprise that survey response rates are falling and customers are suffering from survey fatigue. I hope I upset yeah. some listeners <laughs> by reading that. <laughs> you know, one other thing in the book before we go to, to step seven, eight, and nine, but you talk about a lot of organizations will seek feedback from customers, but they don't tap the staff who deal with them right. all the time. Right. That seems so obvious to me, right. but what have you found to be the, the reason for that if there's a common one?
0: Yeah. What is the reason why they do that? You know, this this is this is such a fundamental question and it's such an important one. Customer service agents, sales support agents in, uh, let's say, in retail shops. Uh, uh, let's say technicians that 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 journey out to the home or office to fix something. They get a lot of feedback from customers, some of it structured, some of it unstructured, some of it frustration, some of it, hey, what about this? I mean, they get all sorts of different things. And why don't we tap into that is is a great question. Um, So we got an example in the book from Eon, a huge utility company in in Europe, one of the biggest ones in the world, gas electric utility based in Germany. And they've employed a tool called Woolcast, which is they ask their own frontline agents in their retail shops or in their customer service centers and when they go out to to fix something in in the home what are our customers saying they ask that question what are our customers saying and did have you heard this very often uh... where the customers frustrated with this issue or is it just a general inquiry um, if they were offering, if the customer is asking for something new, what was that? We want to hear what the customers asking. So they actually went through and have put in a process that has that on an on ongoing basis asking the front line for these inputs. Why don't other customers do it? Companies do it? They don't think about it, I guess, is one of the reasons. Number two, they might think it's more expensive than doing a survey with customers. It isn't. It really is less expensive. <laughs> and the benefits are you engage those frontline employees they feel like hey we're going to be part of the solution set here we're not just you know dealing with frustrated and irritated customers with friction we actually have voice. We want to help figure out what's going on here. So I, I think it's 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 really an, an unsung area that needs to be built up for every company.
1: It just seems like a goldmine of expertise mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. go first to the frontline people. So seven is leverage, and I just want to quote from um, page 171 yeah. where you write, the final strategic action is leverage, and it addresses – Reasons that are valuable to the customer and valuable for the organization. By definition, every organization wants more leverage contacts, should invest time Mm -hmm. in them, and may want to increase their frequency. Customers don't see these contacts as friction because they value them. And the organization Mm -hmm. knows that these interactions are often key to revenue, retention, and relationship building with the customer. You've talked about it earlier, but what are examples of these Mm -hmm. leverage contacts? This was new to me.
0: Yeah. It, 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 they represent only about 20% of the contacts, if I can put sort of an average number on a Douglas. So uh-huh. 80% are in the other actions we talked about. But those 20% are value, really, really important. That's why we call them leverage. So they, it could be something like, hey, tell me about these new products that you have out there. Uh, or uh, how can I extend my membership? You know, Really great question. Maybe they could have found it online, but it's good to have that conversation. You know, Can I add another family member to my plan? What would that cost? Um The ones that are a little bit more negative, yeah, you know, I need to cancel my account, or I, I want to figure out how I can get on a, on a better plan. There are some companies which I would think is coming up a lot quality. these days. Oh, it, it it came up in droves during the pandemic. It's it's still there today. It's going to continue to be. It's always been there. Mm-hmm. But it's gotten to be a bigger and a more heightened issue. The example you gave of Verizon contacting you is a wonderful one, which is, hey Douglas, we're figuring out that you you could go on a better plan. Let's let's help you get on a better plan. That type of outreach only happens when you listen to enough customers who tell you that maybe they're not on the right plan and you do the analytics that says, hmm, someone signed up for like an international dialing plan or an international data plan and they're not really using it anymore. Let's figure out how to deal with it. But before I go to more solutions, going back to the issues, it's when a customer says, hmm, tell me more about this or I'd like to like to find more information or uh, you've got five different products out there that might be useful for me. And I see you've got this comparison on your website, but I just need to get walked through which which of these headsets is best for me, which of these different uh, models is best for me, and um, and so then it's nice to have someone you can talk to who is an expert who can walk through and 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 kind of size up the customer needs. We call it the best fit conversation. Is this really good for you, Douglas? Is this mm-hmm. good for you, Bill? Is this good for you, Nancy? Rather than, you know, kind of a one size fits all. And those conversations should take as long as they, they need to. It's it's like flipping the turtle in a way. It's the opposite of flipping the turtle in the sense of those were irritated customers who can't help themselves here. It's okay, let's figure this out. No clock is going on here. I'm gonna try to help you figure out what's going on. So we, we, we love the leverage contacts and the thing is they get lost in all the frustration and irritation on the previous ones we talked about, so here you need to isolate them and and get them to the right individuals and and really think through how to how to come up with that best fit.
1: Yeah, it seemed like it was almost like the holy grail of this. Oh yeah. Eight is learn, and you are right on page 193, just as the understand step obtains a first pass of data to reveal friction, the learn step makes this an ongoing endeavor by selecting and, and integrating different mechanisms and tracking continuously. I'm wondering, do a lot of organizations neglect the learn step because they look upon this whole idea of being frictionless as like a one-and-done project?
0: They they do unfortunately, and, and and it can't be seen like that. It 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 needs to be an ongoing, continuous project for a couple of reasons. One I touched on earlier, which is someone else is out there already thinking about how they're going to obsolete what you do. That's just the reality. That that that's that's industry, that's commerce, that's entrepreneurism writ large. And so someone else is out there trying to make things simpler for your customers, so you better figure out what's going on in their minds and, and fix it for them first. So that that's the Zoom uh, WebEx uh, issue I talked mm-hmm. about at the beginning of the conversation. But also it's 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 important to figure out what are Hey, go go through the, the, that set of questions that we touched on a few minutes ago, which is why is that the case? T- tell me how this could be easier for you. So it could be the situations that customer is using your product or service is different than that for which you designed it. Uh, we we, have a, we had a client once years ago that had a new high-end device, it was a high-end computer device, and they thought that uh, only gamers were going to be using this product. And so they set up their customer support team with very expert tech support reps. And it turns out gamers weren't buying it. Well, gamers were buying the product, but they didn't need to call up for support. They could figure it out themselves. <laughs> These were other customers that called up who were like first-time customers. And the conversation was, was really disjointed oh. between the, the customer who said, How can I turn this thing on rather than a more detailed – a set of questions that they were prepared to answer. And so the company learned, hmm, we didn't we thought the product was going to be for gamers. It is for gamers, but it's also for the general public and we weren't ready for the general public. So now we've learned from that. And now we've redesigned they redesigned their their support modules and their teams so that they were able to handle the questions that were coming in from new customers as opposed to the gamers who again could take it for themselves. So learn is ongoing Initiative, new channels come out. New customer customer needs are surfacing. Uh, it's it's just, it's just the wonderful thing about it is we've got examples from companies like Red Hat and Vodafone and others who just are passionate about just digging into this and making sure that they stay on top of what the customers are saying.
1: Right, and somebody, or maybe multiple people in the chain of command, are saying, "What are we learning?" what are we learning? Just to keep them focused on that. Now, this is the section of the podcast where we irritate (laughs) listeners from Boston, China, and Mm -hmm. Italy. So let's talk about uh, (laughs) something from page 212. You write, another pattern that can add insight is a customer's PTC, propensity Mm -hmm. to contact, which can also refer to a growing body of research about a customer's Propensity to complain, a customer's tenure mm-hmm. with the organization, the number of products or services they have, and where they live, each provides a different opportunity to learn. <laughs> Take it from there, Mr. Price.
0: Well, th- this is a topic that I've I've seen over and over again back back in my MCI years in the '90s and ever since then, which is companies think that there's an average customer out there, and there is no average customer. I mean, we're, we're all unique.
1: A lot of marketers and salespeople think that.
0: Well, they do. And we'll get to that, I think, when you ask me something later on about books, because I got I got a favorite book that talks about this too. Oh, but good, good. The, the, oh, yeah. But the key thing about this is that the customer's propensity to the the relative rate of their complaining varies dramatically. And so, as you point out, and we talk about in the book, customers from Boston, customers from Italy or Poland, customers from China, customers. Uh, they wind up complaining at a much higher rate than customers in other parts of their countries or other parts of their regions, other regions of the world. And so if you have a, uh, let's say something goes wrong, then you're going to hear about it from those customers and you're going to think, well, okay, it looks like it's not happening for our customers in other regions. The same problem is happening, but they're, don't, they're not bothering to complain. Mm-hmm. So customers in Japan or parts of Korea Don't complain as frequently as those in China or other Vietnam or other parts of Asia, and yet they have the same incident rate. In other words, the same problems occur to them. They they just don't bother to complain, and you need to reach out to them and figure out what's going on so that you can handle all your customers, not just those who complain. And just one other quick example – New customers who are uh, brought on board because of promotion or a new product launch, they tend to complain a lot more frequently, 4x, four times as much as customers have been with you for, let's say, six months. If it's a 12-month contract or even it's just a a longer-term relationship. And so customers that are new to you need more attention. You need to staff up for it and have the right tools for them because otherwise you're going to get overwhelmed. And and so, if you're a company that winds up having lots of promotions, then you have to expect lots of complaints associated with complaints or questions, but complaints in general, and and deal with that so that you wind up having the right staffing levels and the right support tools. It's PTC propensity to complain. You're going to hear a lot more of that, uh, at least for me, over time, and and I hope others will pick
1: it up as well. Maybe another book coming? I it's in the works. Because if you do, I know this guy that interviews authors of new marketing and sales books, and you know he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but his guests are phenomenal. So you write, <laughs> customers from Italy or Boston tend to contact a lot more for the same reason than those in or mm-hmm. from northern European countries or the U.S. Northwest. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's not because they're Red Sox fans. I know a lot of people like to hate on them, but uh, it's, uh, it's science, folks. Okay, so let's go mm-hmm. to the last one, redesign. And yep. I found this one to be the <laughs> most interesting of all nine, particularly as it relates to proactively managing change that I talked about earlier. You know, So proactively managing change rather than waiting for change to happen to you, which often mm-hmm. is after it's too late. And let me just quote from what mm-hmm. you say, redesign recognizes that the world isn't static and redesign is a critical survival strategy in a world that is more dynamic now than at any point in history. And in the chapter, you mentioned how companies can become outdated and irrelevant far more quickly now, like BlackBerry or Gateway Computers or Nokia, Mm -hmm. and that riding new technology waves can deliver great success, but staying on the waves can be a problem. And then, of course, you mentioned Mm -hmm. Clayton Christensen's The the Innovator's Dilemma. He highlights waves of innovation and the need for companies to move from wave to wave, but Mm -hmm. you – Acknowledge that it is hard for organizations to constantly challenge how they work and are organized. and mm-hmm. it's not easy to keep a business from getting complacent. And you even talked about, which I've read about in other books, Amazon's Jeff Bezos. He would often you know, exhort every manager and staff member to wake up every morning terrified that another company would beat Amazon. I think it was the the day mm-hmm. one idea. So in addition exactly. to thinking like that, what do the most successful companies do? To jump from wave to wave?
0: Well, first of all, they do what Microsoft used to say years ago. They eat their own dog food. They they, they, they try their own products themselves. They, they act like and test everything out as customers test them out. Uh, rather than have like a a backdoor channel if they experience technical support problems so they, they call the 800 number they they try the website they uh experience using the product themselves this is from the cxo levels all the way through the organization that's the first one it's just just basically learn from what's going on and when they do that they go huh this doesn't work as well as i thought it did or this is not a clear step here i think i can fix this i can make this a little bit easier so that's number one number one is number two rather is to Look for the weak links. Look for the, the 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 steps along the way, the processes that that aren't clear to the customer, aren't clear even to the company themselves. How how to set up, let's say a a uh, a new video ser- video service video link. I would not name a brand on your laptop. Uh, some of them are really easy to do. Some of them require downloads and take time to do, and 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 so. Making sure you know how easy or hard it is, how irritating or, or uh, valuable it is for customers to even use your own products. And then – and the third one is, is to is – to, and that's why we have so many examples in the book. Look outside of your industry at other companies that, that, that look like they were doing really well, and then they just got eclipsed. They, they just got boxed out. We we use Netflix in, in this chapter, and I was excited to hear the other day, or interested, I, excited is the wrong word, but interested to hear that Netflix is finally stopping their DVD by mail service. Well, I think right. it's in November of this year.
1: I was surprised that it's still going.
0: Well, I was too. It's been declining for a number of years, but they made a bold step years ago to go to go streaming, and obviously it's been a huge success for them. But they kept the DVD-by-mail business because they have lots of customers who love the DVD-by-mail. They either don't have streaming services or access to high speed, and they still like the fact they can get this wide inventory shipped to their home when they need it. They're going to have to manage that transition. Uh, and they, they're in the process of managing that, but they made they made that bold move years ago uh, to redesign their original model, and and it's worked for them. But other companies uh, have stayed with the you know the kiosk model or the DVD by mail model, and they haven't had as much success at all in streaming, and and they're the ones that are getting eclipsed. So look at what other examples are, are happening in the industry, whether it's you know Clay Christensen's book from 20 years ago and other ones, and and the other one is how. Uh, Jim uh, Jim Collins wrote a great book called How the Mighty Fall, which was a smaller, less well-known book to his Good to Great and uh, Built to Last. But How the Mighty Fall is is an object lesson in companies that did ver- that were doing really well. They read their own headlines, uh, but they, they they got eclipsed by somebody else. So read those; they're 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 really good tales.
1: You mentioned organizational arrogance. Uh, I think mm-hmm. was that the book where Jim Collins uh, talked about organizational arrogance it's
0: it's related to what jim talks about too. Yeah, it, the yeah. whole idea is well, you know, we, we, this is going great, you know, we we we're, we're selling this stuff hand over fist, customers really like it, we're getting really good reviews. Okay, that's all fine. But someone else is out there coming up with something even yes. faster or cheaper or better.
1: And one of the ideas from this chapter that I absolutely loved was the the company that created quarterly talk to a customer days. Tell tell what? <laughs> yes, tell yes. what happened there. <laughs> what what what? Every well, single customer had to do it, right? Or every single employee, right?
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It it. The, the whole idea was to make sure that you that everyone is out there talking to customers, and and we have examples in the book from different companies, like T-Mobile in the USA for a number of years has made sure that all of their directors and above have to spend a week a year in a retail shop, uh, actually working the retail shop, not observing, you know, not not. Uh, I mean, actually, they are selling stuff or talking to customers who want to buy stuff or have a problem with their, with their mobile devices or their plans. And they come back full of ideas about how to make things easier, how to make things better. But uh, AGL, which we talk about, an uh, energy company in Australia where David Jaffe lives and other companies have had this talk to a customer, uh, get out there and, and meet with them. Um, other companies do it internally. They say we want to make sure that our, all of our employees spend some time in customer service. Spend maybe yes. a few days or a week even in customer service to mm-hmm. find out what it's really like. Maybe the customer service team needs, needs to spend time in the billing department or in the warehouses to figure out what that's like because that's sort of the source of a lot of the customer problems. So walk in each other's shoes is the generic term for it, Douglas, and it's so, so important.
1: It's so enlightening to do but yet it seems like it's, it's overlooked. So let me just quote from the very last chapter where you write, the case for becoming frictionless is compelling, but it might be hard to know where to start. You might be intimidated by the lack of information surrounding the friction in your company. On the other hand, you might be overwhelmed by data or by the number of problems that need to be solved. Or you might think those problems are too urgent to solve by going through the nine stages <laughs> to becoming frictionless. So Bill Price... How do you get started? Well,
0: we've got we've got nine steps in the book and not enough time to go through all – in this chapter, and not enough time to go through them. But I'll just say start with a small cross-section of the contacts that you know in your heart of hearts are frustrating for your customers. The ones that are repeat contacts that have to do with products that keep failing, service delivery promises that aren't being made properly, uh, bills that seem to, seem to be confusing your customers. Start with those. Mm-hmm. Quantify them. Cost them out. And just start digging into the root causes. That's really the best way to start. Then the eye shade, the the the, the eyes start getting clear. Uh, the customer voice comes into the into the into the core.
1: That's a great way to start. And because it's a podcast about books, it brings to mind a book that was on the show a year or two ago by Nicholas Webb called "What Customers Hate." And that mm-hmm. entire book was about, you know, we should just try and have a good experience for your customers. But rather than boiling the ocean start by finding mm-hmm. out those that small handful of things mm-hmm. they really really hate mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as yep. a first step yep. and mm-hmm. uh i thought that was that was brilliant so bill if readers took only one thing away from the book what would you hope it would be
0: oh uh, okay so <laughs> I, I think if it, I think is one thing would be let's focus on eliminating stuff that's broken or confusing rather than rushing to digitize everything. <laughs> right. Let's 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 maybe put put the pause button on digitize, which I know is going to frustrate a lot of good digital uh, mavens out there. Yeah. And let's figure out how we can eliminate stuff rather than add more to the digital channel.
1: Uh oh, great advice. Great, but wait a minute—they want to go buy a whole bunch of software. <laughs>
0: I'm no, sorry. I know, I know. Yeah, yeah it's right, like exactly. uh, joining
1: a gym will suddenly make you uh, lose weight and get in great yep. shape. No, you actually have to go to the gym <laughs> and use it. So, <laughs> Well, looking back, what books have most inspired your working career? Mm. I, I was hinting
0: about one a few minutes ago when we talked about the all customers are created equal uh joke. I think one of the one of the earliest ones that got me going was uh Don Pepper's and Martha Rogers' first book, The One to One Future. Mm-hmm and it came out in the late 90s. I liked it so much that I reached out to Don. We've developed a good professional relationship now over the years. I even thought about writing an early book called The One-to-One Service, like we should be doing individualized service plans rather than having one size fits all for service. I really liked that one. That's, that's another, that's one. Or even earlier, when I was at business school at Stanford, uh, Jim Adams wrote a book called Conceptual Blockbusting, How to Really Think Outside the Box. And it, it's a great little book. It's been reissued several times in paperback. Lots of little uh, quizzes and tests and experiments you can do with your teams to figure out how to think outside the box. It helps set in that redesign, the last chapter in the oh, book that we talked okay. about for redesign. That's a real good one. Third one is uh, uh, one more recently from Danny Meyer, who uh, runs a number of uh, successful restaurants in New York City. It's called Setting the Table. Uh, he's an excellent speaker. I've heard him on some podcasts and some interviews on NPR and other places. And he talks about how to make sure your frontline employees in your restaurant and even in the back off in 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 the kitchen, everyone is all focused on on uh, on uh, customer experience. And he really writes really compellingly. I like what he does quite a bit. And I mentioned lastly uh, Jim Collins' smaller book called "How the Mighty Fall." Mm-hmm. I like that one quite a bit. It's 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 a, it's a real uh, lesson in, in making sure that you're not. Uh, reading your own uh, headlines too much.
1: Right, and believing all your own press. Exactly. Well, terrific. Are, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? <laughs>
0: Yeah, there's a book that came out last year. Uh, PV Cannon wrote the book. It's called The Age of Intent, and he talks about uh, using AI and technology in chatbots and in many other areas. I, I've got the book. Uh, PV sent me a copy of it. I've read through it uh, and referenced it a little bit in, in our book, but I want to go back and read it again because with the whole chat GBT explosion, it's just such a, a, a miasma. There's so much going on in that. I want to get even smarter on it and, and help think through uh, what needs to be done there So that's one. The other one, a good friend of mine, Jonathan Stutz, uh, has joined up with his business partner, Eddie Pate, and they're writing a book called The Daily Practices of the Inclusive Leader, uh, it also will be published by uh, by Barrett Kohler, uh, and they both have strong uh, DEI backgrounds at places like Amazon, Microsoft, and other companies. And uh, I'm really impressed with what those guys have done over the years, and I'm, I'm looking forward to reading that one next oh,
1: when good. it comes out. It's
0: not even out yet.
1: Okay, okay. Here I am trying to Google it or, or search for it on Amazon. Yeah, the other one you mentioned was the Age of Intent, Using Artificial Intelligence to Deliver a Superior Customer Experience – that was uh, 2019. I got to wonder if the sales of that book have suddenly taken off in, in 2020. I think it might be. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including your, all the books that you have been mentioned, uh, the past interviews I've mentioned, your book website, frictionlessorg.com, your LinkedIn profile. And now word to you, dear listener, I want to ask you a big favor. Please reach out in some way to Bill Price and congratulate him on the book. Thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast, putting up with a lot of really stupid jokes. Send him a message on LinkedIn or check into the website. Guests on the show every week are telling me how much they enjoy hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners. And Not just because marketing book podcast listeners are so ridiculously good looking, as we discussed before we started recording, Bill. And if you are listening on your smartphone and you've (laughs) subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. The book is The Frictionless Organization, Deliver Great Customer Experiences with Less Effort. The authors are Bill Price and David Jaffe. Bill, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast.
0: Douglas, been my pleasure, and I hope all your listeners can start that road to frictionless.
1: And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who've left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker, Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living Self-education will make you a fortune.